good morning. Good to have Pastor Mike and Elisa back with us. We missed you. Um, look forward to further ministry with you in the coming weeks and months and years, Lord willing. Yes. You know, in my 30 years of being a pastor, I have performed uh, a lot of weddings, 118 to be exact. That works out to almost four weddings a year. I remember one year I actually did nine weddings. That, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of weddings. You know, brides like to think their weddings are completely original, that no one has a wedding like theirs. I'm here to burst your bubble. Trust me, they're almost all alike. Not a lot of different weddings out there. Brides also like to think that their weddings are magical. They're perfect. Nothing's ever going to spoil their lovely wedding. Well, that ain't true either. Watch this. After all this time, it's still hard for me to fathom that God loves me enough to give me you, a man who has promised to love me. Oh, God, here we go. Okay. Today, I'm promising you I'll always fart for <laughs> There it is. There's the YouTube. There we go. I, okay, no. I hope not. Today, no. You require so much, but you give so little. Wait. Sorry. I vow not to grow old together. Oh, excuse me. I... <laughs> sure, it's not too late. <laughs> Place this ring on your finger. Place this thing on your ring. <laughs> as I place it. As I, <laughs> Loving all I know of you and trusting what I do not yet know. I already forgot it. <laughs> English is my second language, you know? <laughs> Thought that I may have found the woman of my dreams. According to the traditions. According to the traditions. Just because your rabbi gets proclaimed, you don't have to stop. I need my tempting. Oh, wait, I can't get to you. <laughs> no. <laughs> you had to. <laughs> oh, I can't kiss you. I can't go to kiss her.
as I place this ring on your finger. <laughs> you require so little, but you give so much. I wouldn't be marrying you if you did the other one. For your heart, I will fight for your heart. All right. That's good. That's better. I've had my fair share of wedding bloopers as well over the last 30 years. Um, performed an outdoor wedding, um, someone's backyard, beautiful pastoral setting. They had me up on a little bit of a hill overlooking a creek. The bride and the groom were, were right in front of me. I kind of had like my own little stand up and I had the rings in my, in my binder. And so when they put the rings in my binder, the rings fell out of the binder, onto the grass, into the creek. That wasn't good. That wasn't good. Um, I once fainted. It was so hot in the chapel. I literally was in the middle of the vows, and I just keeled right over. Boom. That wasn't good either. Um, I had, um, what do you call those things? Um, suspenders, and um, one snapped and my pants fell down. <laughs> that also wasn't very good. Um, my wife will remember this. Um, I said the, <laughs> through, the whole, through the whole service, I said the wrong name of the bride. I used the groom's dead, dead, dead wife's name through the entire thing until we get to the I do's, and she said, that's not my name, Pastor. To make it worse, um, I also did another one where I used the wrong name of the bride again, only this time I used the groom's ex-wife's name. That was not good. I showed up at the wrong venue, and I caused the wedding to be late by like an hour, hour and a half, and then once I showed up at the right venue on the wrong day. Completely missed the entire wedding, but it was okay though. It was just a small private affair, just the, the groom and a couple, the groom and the wife uh, and, and a couple family members. So they just postponed it for another day. Uh, I, Mike, how did you do? How many bloopers have you had over the years, Pastor Mike? Where are you? <laughs> By the way, when a guy's preaching on love, and you get up here and you diss his Vancouver Canucks, that's not agape love, buddy. Yeah, they lose again. I, I don't know a wedding, other than Pastor Mike's, that didn't have something go wrong. It's part of the beauty of the whole thing because nothing's perfect. There's another common thread that's woven through all weddings, almost universally. I'm sure there might be a few exceptions, um, but I'm talking about the wedding scriptures. Inevitably, 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter is used. Who here got married and 1 Corinthians 13 was somehow part of your wedding service? Raise your hands. Should be all of you. Yes, a lot of you. As we begin our second week of our sermon series, The Love Feast, let me just quickly do a recap of last week for those of you who weren't here. Remember, there are many different Greek words for love used in the New Testament. Pastor Mike just spoke on filio, and last week, Pastor Elijah spoke briefly on, on Sturge. The Greek word that we are focusing on for this series is agape. And agape is the kind of love that's for all people. It is a selfless, 
kind of love and acts only in the best interest of others. Agape is not earned, nor is it merited. It is given freely and willingly. It's the kind of love that God has for us. God agapes us because we are valuable to him and we bring him pleasure. God wanted to create us. He, he didn't need to. He chose to because love demands action. Love's not a passive verb, meaning it doesn't do anything. Love is an active verb. The essence of love is that it does something. God chose to create us out of love, and in doing so, he called us very good. Very good because we are made in the image of God. Very good because God don't make no junk. You and I bring value and pleasure to God. God, who is love, agapes you unconditionally. And in return, because love demands an action, we are to love what and who God loves. We learned last week that God loves everything and everyone. Which brings us to today's sermon, the face of love. What does agape love look like? Well, here's where 1 Corinthians 13 comes in. The wedding verses. The love chapter, as it's wont to be called. So let's read a portion of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. What does agape love look like? Well, it looks like this. You know, God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast, nor is he proud in sinful ways. He does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking, nor is he easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil, but instead, God rejoices with truth. God always protects, he always trusts, he always hopes, and he always perseveres. God never fails because God is love. So what does agape love look like? It looks like God. The face of love is God. Because God is love. These are attributes of God found in 1 Corinthians 13. These aren't a to-do list for brides and grooms. These are the attributes of God. 1 Corinthians 13 describes to us who God is, what God is. God is love. John 13, 34, 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You and I are called, 
John uses the word command. To love one another in the same manner that God loves us. Our love for one another is to mirror the love of God. It is to duplicate the love of God. The face of God, the face of love, is to be displayed in our lives to the who and to the what God loves. Everyone and everything. How are you doing? Let me ask you, how are you doing at displaying everything found in 1 Corinthians 13? All the time. To everyone. Well, like that fabled perfect wedding, unfortunately, I I think it might be safe to assume all of us have fallen short of all of these expectations in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, at least once today, right? This morning. It feels like a daunting task, doesn't it? That, that to be a disciple of Jesus, we must love one another the same way God loves us. You know, as the old question begs, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So if you may, can I give you this morning three practical ways in which you and I can display the face of love to everyone. Three ways modeled by our Savior Jesus Christ. Three ways that don't have to feel daunting, unreachable, and undoable. Because love demands action. So so we have to try. We have to try. So what does love look like? Well, first thing is it sees. It sees. Let me read to you Luke 7, 11 to 15. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and he touched the, the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. The first thing Jesus does is he looks at the woman. Doesn't look at the crowd. He doesn't look at the dead son. Jesus saw her. Now this is more than just looking at her with his eyes, although that certainly is a part of it. Seeing her implies that Jesus understood her situation, had compassion for her situation. She's a widow. This is the second loved one she has lost. First her husband, and now her only son. She's in a precarious social position, being a female, with no husband and now no son. This will make her a veritable outcast, likely to become a street beggar. Or worse, she may have to sell herself for food and lodging. 
So when Jesus sees her, when Jesus sees her situation, he understands it, and he looks to fix it. He has compassion on her and gives her hope. This isn't the only time Jesus has modeled this type of behavior. Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Mark 10, 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. John 19, 26. When Jesus saw his mother there, if you and I are called to love how God loves, it begins with seeing one another. Not, not just looking at, at each other, but understanding one another. Having compassion for one another. It means seeing each other for, for who we are, not for who we want you to be having compassion for our situations that we find ourselves in, and then trying to help out each other. Sherry and I, we, someone saw us this past week. They had compassion on us. They understood our situation, and they sought to fix it by giving us a gift. What a blessing that was. Not so much the gift, but just the fact that we were seen that someone understood our situation and they looked to address it to bring relief to us. What a powerful example of agape love. You know, some of us, myself included, often we look away from hurting people. We see people who are off in the distance or by themselves. We know they're hurting. Either they're crying or they're, they're just their body position, how they're, how they're sitting, how they're standing. And you know that they're hurting. Why do we look away from hurting people? Well, I, I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for me. I have lots of reasons. The hassle, the dirt, the risk, the cost, the commitment, oh my goodness. If I went over there and spent time and saw them and learned them, learned about their situation, it's going to take a lot of, of my time up. The commitment will be incredible. When Jesus touched the casket of the widow's son, he became ritually unclean. Touching the dead defiled him. There was a cost to Jesus Compassion. We instinctively know that love leads to commitment, so we look away when we see a beggar. We might have to pay if we look too closely and care too deeply. Loving means losing control of our schedule, of our money, and our time. When we love, we cease to be the master, and we become the servant. But failing to see someone means we become too focused on our own agendas and our own thoughts and our own feelings rather than on those of the person who is in need. So to be lovers of people, we need to look at them. We need to look at one another. Not just, hey, good to see you, Dick, but to get down 
to look into each other's eyes and to ask, Dick, how you doing? And then and as Dick shares how he's doing, not to be formulating the next question, <laughs> but to actually listen. To actually listen. So what is... See, when we start seeing one another, sometimes we can become confused or overwhelmed. And often, we don't even know where to begin or how to begin. And I get that. I get the nerves of going to someone and seeing them. Because you don't know what to do. But don't let that stop you, because you can still look. We might not feel compassion right away, but we can concentrate on the other person. By keeping the other person in front of us, we are opening the door to compassion. Knowing that someone sees you is medicine in of itself. Like I said, we, Sherry and I got the flu this last week. I think I shook too many hands on Sunday. We were down and out. It was the perfect time for someone to come and see us. What a beautiful gift that was. It, it, it was medicine to our soul. So what does love look like? Well, it's compassion. It's giving compassion, and it begins by seeing. But love also speaks. John 9, let me read this. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. In biblical times, in ancient times, disabled people had to defend for themselves by begging along the side of the road. Few cared for the weak. Again, I want you to notice that Jesus saw the blind man. Jesus saw him long before his disciples asked who had sinned. You see, the, the disciples automatically judged the man for his blindness. Instead of talking with the blind man or trying to help him, they looked to Jesus for an answer for, for this man's sin that caused his blindness. When I was going to school in Regina, um, I, I had the privilege of, of, of being a manager of a Christian bookstore, and it was owned by this couple. It was, I, for lack of better words, they were a disabled couple. He was a paraplegic in a wheelchair. She was legally blind. Her, her eyes were, were, were cross-eyed, and you could tell that she couldn't see very well. And, and as, as, a, as, a, as a bonus, they took me out for dinner. And so we went to the restaurant, and we sat at the table, got there. The waiter came up, and he looked at me. He didn't look at my two friends, the one in the wheelchair or the one who was legally blind. And he said to me, what will your friends be having for, for dinner? I said, I don't know, ask them. And he's like, wow, I thought maybe you were their mentor or something. Like, no, this is a businessman. This guy's wealthier than I am. Like, this guy's taking me out for dinner. He knows how to speak. She can speak for themselves. But, you know, they, they, we often see people who are disabled, 
and we, we don't think we can talk to them. And we have to talk to the person who's with them. Or if a person is, is blind, have you ever done this? You know someone's blind, so you talk louder, you know, so they can hear you? I don't know why you do that. So here's the disciples. They're talking about the blind man while they were right in front of him. He's right there. He can hear everything they're saying about him, about his sin. Who sinned, him or his parents? Jesus doesn't do that. He moves towards the blind man. He makes mud, touches his eyes. He's now healed. He who was blind can now see. Jesus lowered himself in order to care for the man while the disciples elevated themselves in order to judge. Jesus says in, in John 12, 47, I, I did not come to judge the world, but I have come to save the world. The disciples don't allow room for a third option for the, for the man's blindness, that the man was born blind at the fault of neither himself nor his parents. Had they spoken with the blind man, they would have learned his story, understood his lifelong journey, and being an outcast because of something that he had no control of. Instead, they saw, but then they judged. They judged without talking to the man. It's one thing to see a blind man. It's quite another to stop and talk with him. That part gets scary. He might ask for money. He might, he might interrupt our schedule. Because compassion affects us. Maybe that's why we judge so quickly. It keeps us from being infected by other people's problems. Passing judgment is just way too efficient. We'll often notice things wrong with people. But does that initial look lead to compassion or to judging? Because compassion and judging are two different ways of seeing. We don't need to try to figure out what's wrong with people. That's God's job. Our job is simply to try to understand their situation and show compassion. And you can't really understand another person's problem or situation unless you talk with them. Folks, we got to see each other more. We have to look at each other more, and we have to stop, and we have to have meaningful conversations with each other. If we want community, we got to do better at seeing and speaking, learning each other's story, our situations, and understanding why they might be in the situation that they're in, not judging them. Oh, they're divorced. That must have mean he did something really bad. Or whatever the situation might be. We stand at a distance, we see them, but then we judge. We don't even know their situation. We've got to get better at seeing and, and, and talking and listening. So what, is, what, is, what does love look like? Well, it's compassion. And compassion sees and it speaks. But it also listens. Mark 10, 47 to 52. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, a blind man began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Many rebuked the blind man and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Another blind man, another healing by Jesus. Jesus sees the blind man. He speaks to the blind man. And he listens to what the man wants. Jesus gives the man exactly what he asked for. He asked to be healed from his blindness. Don't miss this. Jesus listens to what the man wants and out of compassion gives it to him. I've shared this story before in some of our small groups. But my first wife passed away at a young age in our marriage, early in our marriage from cancer. It was, a, it was a tough battle. And people would always ask us or ask her, her name was Teresa. Teresa, what do you need? What, what, what can we do for you? And her only response was, you know, I, I get bored at home. I just sit and I nod off to sleep. If you could come and sit with me and talk with me and keep me company, that would be awesome. And if I fell asleep, just let me fall asleep and just let yourself out. That's all she wanted. No one ever came. No one ever came. But you know what we got? Cookies. Everybody gave us cookies. We had so many cookies. After she passed and we went through the freezer, the whole freezer was full of cookies. Our DVS, DVBS program that summer had enough cookies to last all, all week long. She didn't want cookies. She couldn't even eat cookies at this stage. I mean, I could, but that's a lot of cookies. In Luke 11, 11, Jesus says, which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? If I could paraphrase that, which of you Christians, if, you're, if, if your brother or sister asked for companionship, would give them cookies instead? I mean, we, we patronize people, my friends. Listen to this. We patronize people when we assume that we know how they want to be helped. While we sincerely want to help, maybe we want to help in the way that least inconveniences us. I mean, those fine folks were already making cookies anyways. So it didn't, didn't cost them much more of their time or effort to just make another extra batch to give to Teresa. That's called top-down love. That's, that's when we decide how and when to love. But love ought to be bottom-up. Because bottom-up love is... is, is is when we lose control of how to love. Others decide for us how we ought to love. Bottom-up love is the best kind of love because no one can help me think about your world better than you. So when I ask you, what can I do to help you, and you tell me, and I do something completely different, that's not very agape. 
And it begins with seeing. But we need to speak to one another and we need to listen. This is the face of love. Folks, the face of love is compassion. That's a much shorter list than the one presented to us in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a little easier to remember as well. See, speak, listen. All leading to compassion. That's it. That's it. Can, can each of us afford to give a little bit more compassion to one another every day? Can we do that? Because that's the face of love. That's the face of God. God is compassion because God is love. What if everyone did this? What if everywhere you went, people would see you, speak to you, and listen to you? What if people had compassion on you, learned your story, and sought to meet your needs the way that you knew your needs needed to be met? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Who wouldn't like that? Sounds really good. Then we realize that there's no guarantee that we will be treated the same in return. Because love is a risk. Love is a risk. It may not get returned exactly how you want it to be returned. But someone has to make the first move. We can't stop showing compassion to one another because we're fearful that it might not get returned to us the way we want it returned. We, someone has to make the first move. So who's going to make that first move? Well, God did. God made the first move. He took a risk in agapeing you. Loving you unconditionally. He took a risk with his compassion. He did it because you have value to him. He did it because you bring him pleasure. And he asked you to take the same risk. The exact same risk. By seeing one another. By speaking to one another. And by listening to one another. Being compassionate with one another. And looking to help relieve each other's burdens. That, my friend, is what love looks like. It looks exactly like God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as I close in prayer. I'll say it again. Sherry and I saw the face of God this week because love showed up at our door. You know how long they were at our door? 30 seconds, maybe a minute. But boy, did that change our outlook for that week. We were seen, people spoke to us, and they listened. And the result is that they displayed the face of God, and we got to see God. What a beautiful thing. If we can just show a little bit more compassion to one another, boy, wouldn't that be a great, a great thing. Father God, you took a risk. You took a huge risk in loving us. Because of sin, we don't, we don't chase after you. Because of sin, we, we value other things above you. Because of sin, we, we get so focused on, on our stuff that we forget about you. 
yet you love us anyways, and you love us unconditionally, and you have compassion on us. You, you see us. You, you've learned our story. You, you know what we need. And, and Lord, even when we ask for something that we think we need, you give it to us, even if we don't really need it, because you love us. And Lord, now you ask us to, to duplicate this love, to, to, to be the face of love here on this earth. And Lord, we need help. We need your help. So Father, thank you for what you've done. You're an awesome God, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. See it for a moment. You know, when I was preparing the sermon, I realized that we all have a love blooper file, just like the wedding bloopers. All of us have a long file, I'm sure, of times that we've we've aired in how we've tried to love or maybe we didn't love when we should have loved. I'm not going to show you those videos, by the way. I don't have them. But, uh, but can I give you permission this morning for something? I want to give you permission to forgive yourself if you haven't loved the way God has called us to love. I, I want to give you permission to forgive yourself because God has forgiven you. Don't beat yourself up. None of us are perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect wedding. There's no such thing as a perfect human being. We're going to make mistakes. We've all made blunders when it comes to loving one another. But these bloopers shouldn't prevent us from trying again and again and again and again. Don't let your mistakes prevent you from trying to show compassion to one another. And we've all been rejected at some point by others. Our love, our compassion hasn't been returned. And it hurts. It stings. I get it. It makes us retreat, not open ourselves up again for fear of being hurt again. But these rejections shouldn't prevent us from loving others. Instead, we have to forgive those as God forgives us. We need to show compassion on others again and again and again because love is a risk. But boy, it's a valuable risk. It's a worthwhile risk. Why is it worthwhile? Well, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love each other because he, God, first loved us. So next week, we're going to look at the why. Why do we love? Part of our sermon series, Action Point, is, 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 is our hope is that you'll gather in groups at people's homes to share an agape feast, a love feast, together. I introduced this action point last week. And thank you to those who have already signed up. We almost filled up two whole lists. Well done. Here's how it works. I want you to begin thinking and praying or continue to think and pray about who you might invite over to your homes for a love feast as a way of extending love, community, and hospitality to those around you, as a way of seeing one another, of speaking to one another, and listening to one another. And it could be anyone that you invite, believers, the unsaved, friends, neighbors, co-workers, whoever, really. There isn't one specific date that you need to do this on, although it would be nice to have them all held over the next few months leading up to Easter. 
And to help make it easier, I said this last week, Sherry and I will provide anyone who wants to host a love feast at their home one big roast. And last week, the walkers heard this challenge, and they said, we'll provide the potatoes. So you get a roast and a bag of potatoes if you graciously volunteer to host a love feast in your home. If you don't need them, then don't take them. But if you're interested in doing so, contact the church office, let us know. The sign-up sheets are in the lobby. And if you can't host, but you'd like to attend one, sign up as well and just say, I want to attend. And we're going to get you to a love feast. Because we need to value learning, seeing, speaking, and listening to one another. Because we have to value compassion. One more assignment really quickly before we go. Now that we're together in one service, it's a lot easier. Can you start learning one family every week? Learn their names. Learn where they work. Learn who they are. Talk to them and listen to them. So many times I've talked to people, hey, do you know this couple? No, I don't know who they are. Maybe they go to first service. Maybe they go to second service. I don't, I don't know who they are. Well, you've been, they've been in church for two years. You know, Pastor Mike's right. It's okay if we don't remember your name, but we should know something about you. Otherwise, we, start, we stop feeling valued. And that's not good. Because you are valued. You're valued by God, and we have to reflect that value to you. So having these services together has been good. It's been good. You can stand, and I'm going to give you the, the benediction. Sorry for going so long today. That's the bad side of having one service. Pastors can prattle on. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13 says this. May the Lord make your love, make your agape, increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.